Welcome to the British Elections Podcast. Today's episode is going to be an introduction to the podcast where I introduce myself, explain what the podcast is about, and then set the scene for the podcast by discussing the development of the party system in the run-up to the 1950 election. My name is Dr Tim Smith. I'm a part-time researcher, I'm a politics enthusiast, and I did a PhD on the electoral system and on specifically on incumbency advantage. During the COVID pandemic, I discovered the joy of podcasts and of podcasting. I started listening to titles such as Mike Duncan's History of Rome, his Revolutions podcast, and Robin Pearson's Fantastic History of Byzantium podcast, and they inspired me to do my own. Whilst I've found quite a lot of history podcasts on, on a number of subjects, from anything from the Crusades to World War One, I felt there was a bit of a gap in the market on political history, and especially on elections, which is the thing that most interests me. And so I thought I might have something to offer, so I decided to work on my own. So what's this going to be about? I want to tell the story of British elections in a more narrative style. How were the elections fought, who were the main participants, and what were the main issues? How were they covered at the time by the press, television and other media? And then once the ballot box are opened, what actually happened, and why did it happen? So I'm going to start with the 1950 election, and move through the 1950s. There are in fact four general elections in this decade, 1950, 1951, 1955 and 1959. So why start with 1950? In fact, I originally planned to start in 1955, which was where my thesis started. Uh, But in doing research for the project, I decided that there was actually a better running narrative by going two elections back. 1950 also has an advantage of being the first election with a uniform electoral system. Believe it or not, it's actually the first in which there were entirely single-member constituencies and there was no plural voting, such as university seats or the City of London um, guild votes. The 1950 and 1951 elections also both include some of the most famous figures in British political history. We've got Winston Churchill, Clement Attlee, Anthony Eden and Aniron Bevan. I intend to show you that contrary to popular beliefs, that you often hear that the past in elections was some sort of golden age of polite politics. It's a myth. If you think that dodgy promises, name-calling, election stunts, snowflakery or cancel culture are anything new, then please think again. So let me start with um, a critique of 2019 and uh, Boris Johnson's election campaigning, paraphrasing from an article during the campaign. It says, this is Boris's technique. Hint at an alluring possibility in the hope of exciting the less thoughtful voter. Be careful to crouch that hint in terms so indefinite that it does not constitute an actual pledge or a positive plan of action. Then leave it to the Tory press to give your hint all the appearance of vivid reality by decking it in huge headlines and enthusiastic leading articles. Thus, if electors are sufficiently deluded to send you into power, you can always quote your original words to prove that you promised nothing anyway. Now, that might sound like a textbook criticism of Boris Johnson and his campaigning style, but in fact, what I said was really not written about uh, Boris Johnson at all. It was in fact written in the Daily Herald on the 16th of January 1950, and it was an attack on Winston Churchill 
who had just made a vague hint that the petrol rationing could soon be reduced in the coming months, i.e. the people could have larger rations. With elections, there's nothing new on, under the sun, and I'm keen to show you that. Another thing I'm keen to do is talk about the financial history that goes with elections. One of my big bugbears about politics and political coverage is that you often find that politics and the sort of economics and financial history are split off as if the two occur in a vacuum. But in fact, if you look at most of the post-war elections prior to the 1990s, nearly all of them had major economic issues front and centre of the campaign. So, for example, the 1950 and the 1951 elections have rationing, planning, taxation and the dollar crisis front and centre. Elections in the 1960s had worries about Britain's balance of payments and relative economic decline. Elections in the 70s and 80s came along a cascade of crises. We had exchange rate, inflation, industrial action and some of the worst mass unemployment since the 1930s. So as I said at the top of the podcast, before I get going on the 1950 election, I need to set up the scenery by talking about the two parties and the baggage they brought with them to the elections. So I've decided to do this in two parts. For the remainder of this episode, I want to discuss the conservative hegemony in the interwar period, its sudden collapse and the consequence for the the electorate's perception of the party as we started elections in the 1950s. The next episode is going to discuss the post-war Labour government, led by Clement Attlee. It is going to talk about its, its achievements and its uh, controversies, and finish with a discussion of the sterling devaluation in 1949. So one of the key features about the 1950 election, and indeed also the 1951 election, was whilst the Conservatives fought it in opposition to the last four and a half years of Labour government, The Labour government fought back as if it was in opposition to the conservative 1920s and 1930s. For all but three years of the interwar period, the Conservatives had either been in power on their own or the stronger dominant party in some sort of coalition, Um, and as I said, in all but three years from 1918 to 1940. In 1935, the Conservative-dominated national government had been re-elected with a majority of over 200 with Attlee's Labour Party yet again rejected as unfit for government. Yet, at the next election, when it finally came in 1945, delayed a little bit because of the war, the Conservatives suffered a savage defeat, the worst, in fact, they'd suffered since 1906, and uh, looking ahead, it was the worst they had until 1997. And this was despite the apparent popularity of Winston Churchill, the charismatic war Prime Minister. As Vernon Bogdanoff says in his excellent Gresham College lecture on the 1945 election, there are an awful lot of popular myths about it. One was that Churchill lost it at the last minute with his infamous Gestapo quote. He said in a party broadcast that if Labour win, they'd need some to employ some sort of Gestapo to enforce all their plans and controls. However, despite the offence caused by these remarks, the truth was that there had been a major change in the political climate between the two elections. By the 1945 election, the Conservatives were really disliked and discredited. Alan Clark, the former Tory MP, diarist and also historian, sums up the Conservative state at the 1940 election with the following quote from Lord Beaverbrook. The truth is that the British public have been conceiving for a long time an immense dislike of the Tory party, 
the Tory members of Parliament and many of the Tory ideas. They were bored and wanted a change, end quote. That might well sound familiar to those living in 1997, or perhaps, dare one say, 2023-2024. The Conservatives had become a toxic brand by 1945, and one that was still untrusted even after four and a half years of opposition by 1950. So what went wrong? Why did the Conservative hegemony suddenly come to such an abrupt end? The Conservative Party's semi-official historian, Lord Blake, sums it up as follows. Churchill lost because the Conservatives were associated with most of the ills of the interwar years. Unemployment, depression, failure to prevent war, and the unready for it, unreadiness for it when it came. It was the Conservatives who were in, and they were bound to take the rap for what went wrong." End quote. The failure of the appeasement policy of the late 1930s and the poor performance of Chamberlain's initial war government was what many people initially blamed. Churchill clearly initially thought that Chamberlain's ghost cost him the election. However, as, a, as we're going to repeatedly see, it's the unemployment and depression aspects that Labour are really going to keep using as the centrepiece of their attack on the Conservatives at elections and well into the 1950s. What may have been even more damaging to the Conservatives is that the war appeared to show to the public that there was an alternative to their policies. In the 1920s and 30s, they'd been told that there was no alternative. But maybe the war had shown them that this had not been the case and had the party taken the public for a ride. So looking at the 1920s and 30s in a little bit more detail... The Conservatives were unfortunate in that there was a period of structural weakness for the UK economy. Some of its heavy industries had plants and equipment that was much older than, uh, than that of the competition from the US and the continent, and some of the industries started to fall behind uh, competition from these countries. But this relative weakness was undoubtedly exacerbated by some serious macroeconomic blunders, in my opinion the worst of which was Chancellor Winston Churchill's 1925 decision to fix sterling back on the gold standard. Um, not only did the uh, decision fix um, the currency, it also did it at the old pre-World War I parity of $4.86 to the pound. Given the big price rises in the UK during World War I, this led to an overvalued currency, and deflation was needed um, in order to keep uh, sterling at that level, which further weakened exporters. The consequence of mistakes like these was very high unemployment during the interwar period. During the Victorian and Edwardian periods before World War I, there were only a few months, in fact, between the mid-1880s and 1921, when unemployment was above 10%. However, after the deep post-war downturn in 1921, there were only a few months when unemployment was actually below 10%, at least until the war recommenced in 1939. So in October 1929, the month of the Wall Street crash, just as the world was entering, um, just the world was preparing to enter depression, UK unemployment was already 10.8%. The UK was already in a serious economic mess before things had even started going wrong. 
So uh, as soon as uh, the Wall Street crash effect started to go through, unemployment in the UK rocketed to over 20%, and it stayed there until well into the 1930s. But in the most economically depressed areas, such as Tyneside or South Wales, unemployment could, could be as high as 80%, and it remained at extremely high levels um, in these uh, particularly depressed places for the whole of the 1930s, even when things were getting better nationally. There was a basic system of welfare, a kind of safety net, that Asquith and David Lloyd George had established just before the start of World War I, but it had an awful lot of holes, it included conditionality, and there were some pretty humiliating means tests. So you may ask why, given unemployment was so bad in the 1920s and the 1930s, how on earth did the Conservatives um, keep managing to get re-elected? Part of the answer was that the public frankly believed the, this old line of Tina, there is no alternative. Governments, including the two brief minority Labour governments, strictly adhered to so-called orthodox balance, balanced budget economic policies. The consequence of this was when economic downturn arrived, governments of all parties cut spending and increased taxes in order to keep the books balanced, exacerbating the downturns. Whilst Labour, under its moderate leadership of Ramsay MacDonald and Chancellor Philip Snowden, advocated economic and social reforms, they were careful not to be seen as tearing up economic orthodoxy. Snowden actually boasted in his 1924 budget that he was so moderate that the bankers in the City of London were going to put up a statue of him. Unfortunately, though, Snowden made his own mistakes, and in response to the crisis of 1930, he raised taxes, and then in 1931 he took a step further, cutting public sector wages by 10%. Keynes was horrified. Um, his policies of advocating smoothing the economic cycle by borrowing in recession and running surpluses in periods of expansion would have done the opposite to this. But this um, orthodox um, policy made the peaks and troughs in the economic cycle larger. Keynes, of course, didn't really come into the mainstream of governments until the war coalition of 1940. So why was the government so worried about running a balanced budget? And the answer of that was the trauma of the cost of World War I debt, which outstripped anything seen before. The UK ended World War I with a deadweight debt of over £7 billion. Uh, something like 150% um, of output. And it meant that the interest payments on the debt made up at least a quarter of the government's spending. It meant that the government had no prospect of restoring income tax to anything like the levels it had been to prior to World War One. Worse still, over a third of the long-term debt was from a single issue, the infamous Third War Loan of the, uh, from the start of 1917, which had been issued at what um, Lloyd George described at the time as the penal rate of 5%. Five, 5%. Pre the First World War, long-term debt, which were then known as consuls, had coupons of around 2.5%. But by 1917, the government had to radically improve its offer in order to persuade the government to lend to it in the quantity needed. To rub salt into the wounds, the government actually had to issue the um, third war loan at a discount. It was issued at 95, which meant that the investors got an additional pickup. 
Unlike other countries such as France, which cheerfully devalued its currency and therefore inflated away the value of its debt in real terms, the UK was keen to protect those who had lent it the money in, um, during the war. The UK largely owed the debt to its own people, albeit mostly the very wealthy of its people, but it was a point of principle that they shouldn't be robbed by the kind of inflationary tricks that were regularly used on the continent. The furthest the government was prepared to go was in 1932, when the fall in long-term interest rates caused by the Depression uh, gave the government the opportunity to force convert the third war loan into a 3.5% undated conversion bond. Since the war debt was callable at par, it wasn't actually an outright default. Some history books sort of say the UK defaulted in 1932, um, but I think that's a bit of a myth, given that the government had actually the right to call the debt at par. Keynes described it as being a bluff. David Lloyd George, who'd been Prime Minister at the time, regretted the disastrous consequences of the debt. He said, it cost the country a dozen years of remorseless deflation and concomitant depression to bring interest rates down again to a level that would enable this vast sum to be reconverted to 3.5%. In fact, the 3.5% conversion bond survived until 2014-15, when the then-Chancellor George Osborne ordered their repayment. Um, as Ross McKibben points out in his book Parties and People on Interwar Politics, there's a huge irony in this obsession with um, keeping the debt in that it's the middle class and wealthy savers who were protected from losing their capital, but they're the ones who ended up paying high rates of income tax, including very often on the interest payments from the debt. From the end of World War I until rearmament began in earnest in 1938-1939, the standard rate of income tax varied between four shillings and six shillings. If you can't um, manage the old pounds, shillings and pence system, that's 20% to 30%. But it's interesting because you, you won't ever see um, income tax rates until the 1970s expressed in percentages. Uh, at the time, they're all um, expressed in uh, pre-decimal currency. So we have a, an income tax, standard rate of income tax of 20 to 30 percent, way, way above the levels that they've been um, through before uh, the First World War, uh, which was rarely more than a shilling or five percent. If you have a look at the uh, rates of the highest, the highest rate of income tax, which includes the so-called super tax and surtax um, elements which were imposed on the top of the standard rate, the, the top rate of tax um, varied between 50 and 70%, and that was an extraordinarily high, high rate compared with what we had before World War I, when it, the top rate was very, very rarely above 10%. And although this only kicked in on incomes above 30,000, which is the equivalent of several million in today's money, uh, that's an extremely high rate for a, a so-called conservative government to have um, implemented. And it's rather an irony that despite the fact that the Conservatives were in power for all, almost all the period between uh, 1918 and 1940, the Overton window, if you like, about what was a, an acceptable level of um, income tax and surtax moved very, very sharply to the left. And memories of the pre-First War, World War I low tax rates of, say, 5 to 10% started to fade away.
if you've got too much sympathy for the uh, super rich, then uh, you might want to think again, because much of the uh, tax uh, regime in the 1920s and 1930s was extremely naive. You could uh, you could get away with paying um, with avoiding paying surtax by incorporating um, your estate into a company so that it just paid the standard rate of income tax. And the perception began to grow that there was a that the proceeds of workers' wages and if you like middle class salaries, so so-called earned income, was being taxed to the advantage of the idle rich, who were very often able to escape um, paying the full rate of, of tax that they really owed, or in some cases were still some greedy war profiteers from World War One, who were living off the interest from uh, some of these high coupon bonds. So, if you like, earned income was going to, uh, was being taxed in order to pay um, unearned income. Chamberlain, as Chancellor in the late 1930s, started to increase tax relief on earned income. So there started to be uh, slight differential rates between um, the income tax that you'd have to pay on wages and salaries and what you'd have to pay on so-called unearned income, so bond interest and rents in particular. But I think this probably came too little too late. So the next question I think we need to ask is how on earth did Labour avoid uh, the opprobrium for this era when they'd been in office at the start of the Great Depression? And although the Depression is usually remembered as hitting the US and Weimar Germany the hardest, the UK was actually the first domino to fall in many ways. It succumbed to market pressures in 1931 rather than hitting the sort of bottom in 1932 or 1933. By mid-1931, the markets no longer regarded the UK's membership of the gold standard as credible, and capital began fleeing the country. And this, of course, puts pressure on the UK reserves. I've already mentioned Philip Snowden responding by cutting public sector wages by 10%, but this wasn't enough. And after more measures were called for, and the UK failed to persuade of all countries France to lend the British government money, and that was a humiliation then, given that the UK was usually associated as being the banker to Europe. And after that humiliation, the minority Labour government collapsed. And this was the key point, because here Snowden, the Chancellor, and Ramsay MacDonald, the Prime Minister, were willing to join up with the Conservatives and also the Liberals to form the so-called National Government. But the bulk of the Labour Party rejected it. They disavowed the coalition and decided to go into opposition. The consequence of that initially was a heavy defeat for what if you like, the rump Labour Party at the 1931 election. They won fewer than 100 seats. But uh, the the second consequence was the so-called national government quickly became a conservative one in all but name. Snowden was actually replaced as Chancellor by Neville Chamberlain. And although Macdonald carried on, in fact, up until 1935, he was really Prime Minister in name only, with Stanley Baldwin, the Conservative leader, um, holding all the cards. But by going into opposition and disavowing Macdonald and Snowden, it turned out that, in fact, the National Government and the Conservatives would be the ones that would end up owning, if you like, Snowden's original legacy as time went on. People began to forget that it was the Labour Party that were in, was in office in 29-31 and thought of Macdonald and Snowden as basically Tories. Labour, initially under George Lansbury and then under Clement Attlee, moved well to the left. They advocated major nationalisation 
heavy government in- intervention and a centrally planned economy. Uh, Ross McKibben's view is that during the 1930s, the bulk of the public and, uh, if you like, uh, uh, enough of the working class, if not a majority, regarded Labour's policies as, uh, as not only unwise and unrealistic, but possibly even being the product of some really quite serious malice. So in 1935, the national government, which is now actually led by Stanley Baldwin himself, MacDonald having retired, is re-elected. The public believed there was no alternative. But as we're going to discuss in the next section, all of that changed during the war. But before we start uh, talking about the war and the war economy, I need to, uh, to try and keep this at least in part chronological. So I'm going to do a quick word on the matter of appeasement. So looking forward to 1945 again, the other big albatross the Conservative Party found that was hanging round its neck was the failure of the national government's appeasement policy in the late 1930s, and also its very poor performance during the open nine months of the war. So Chamberlain and his Foreign Secretary, Lord Halifax, had aimed to avoid another war in Europe by making concessions to Hitler, the most infamous of which, of course, is the Munich Agreement of 1938, and that partitioned Czechoslovakia in Nazi Germany's favour. Although at the time of the agreement, it has to be remembered that it was extremely popular with the public, who, like the government, were desperate to avoid the horrors of another war. However, as I think we all know, the policy was a failure, and after some more diplomatic errors in early 1939, Chamberlain was cornered into declaring war on Germany after their invasion of Poland in September of that year. Despite the fact that Churchill had opposed the appeasement strategy and had been left out of government by Chamberlain, Labour and its left-wing allies were able to construct a strong narrative of conservative cowardice and incompetence in the run-up to World War II. In 1940, uh, Michael Foote, initially under the pseudonym of Cato, published a book called Guilty Men, and it sets out a series of how a series of Tory foreign secretaries and prime ministers had all appear, appeased the fascist powers, not just Nazi Germany, but also Japan, Italy and nationalist Spain. It's also worth adding that the initial performance of Chamberlain's war ministry um, was pretty weak. Um, Roy Jenkins um, is typical of, of, of later historians who said that the Chamberlain and his colleagues simply weren't capable of managing a war. They just weren't up to it. Uh, a sad, if interesting, curio is the so-called Great Pet Massacre of September 1939. Citizens were so frightened by government propaganda that the enemy bombing was going to start on day one that as many as three quarters of a million cats and dogs were put to sleep Uh, because the public were worried um, and believed government propaganda that they might be a burden during the war. Now, although, as I said above, I think the economics were more important than the the consequence of appeasement and and, uh, World War II incompetence, the Churchill government clearly believed that the presence of appeasers um, was toxic, and Churchill tried to remove as many of them from his government as possible. Chamberlain actually died in November 1940, but the others were quickly dispatched. So Lord Halifax was sent to the US as an ambassador. Sir Samuel Hoare, who'd been foreign secretary in the early um, 1930s, 
who's the author of the inf- infamous Hall of Valpact with Fascist Italy, was sent off to Spain as the uh, ambassador. At future elections, the Conservatives tried to keep the worst of these appeaser baddies, if you like. They kept them away like the plague, whilst Labour speakers would seek to remind the public about them. And they'd even attempt to tar Conservatives with relatively good records, such as Anthony Eden, with the brush of appeasement. So after the collapse of the Chamberlain government in May 1940, the Conservatives realised they could only continue the war with a full coalition with the Labour Party. Another election was due by the end of 1940, and the only acceptable way of um, avoiding it by extending the life of Parliament for uh, another year, or as it turned out, five years, was the opposition's full participation in government. You can't just single-handedly... avoid another election without the opposition joining the government. Whilst the Labour Party was indeed willing to join a coalition with the Conservatives, what it wasn't going to do was allow any kind of repeat of the national government of 1931. In their eyes, Snowden and Macdonald had been puppets of the perfidious Tory party. This time there were going to be some major strings attached. The right-wing Liberal Chancellor, Sir John Simon, had to be moved out of the Treasury and Labour immediately insisted that the wealthy are going to have to pay more tax. They called this the so-called fair shares policy. The Labour Party insisted that there would be more assistance to the least well-off, food subsidies had to be introduced, and the government also had to bring in a new generation of interventionist economists, including, of course, Keynes himself. Jenkins, in his study of the chancellors, um, so this is Roy Jenkins, who's a future a chancellor, claims that the war tax policies um, that were introduced by Sir Kingsley Wood in 1941 were in fact the work of Keynes himself. It was Keynes who insisted on huge tax increases in order to choke off unnecessary consumption. So the 1941 budget, um, which was introduced by the new Chancellor, Sir Kingsley Wood, was an absolute shocker. It took the standard rate of income tax to 10 shillings, or 50%. And the top rate of income tax for anyone fortunate enough to earn more than £20,000 a year was raised to the extraordinarily high rate of 19 shillings and sixpence, or if you prefer, 97.5%. Alan Clarke, in his uh, book on uh, the Tories, mentions the Duke of Wellington, whose income of around 40000 a year, which I think would probably be worth about £4 uh, million pounds in today's wages, uh, ended up only keeping a tenth of it. Um, so an effective tax rate of about 90% for someone earning uh, 40000 a year. There was also going to be no repeat of World War I profiteering. Although there'd been some excess profit taxes in at the very end, 1917-1918, uh, the new government was going to implement a much stricter regime, and the ex- excess profit tax rate was set at 100%. There was also going to be no repeat of the generous coupons on the loans that had been issued, um, unlike in World War I. There were also stringent foreign exchange and capital controls, and monetary policy was almost completely locked down. So the general public and the wider private sector ended up being basically forced. They had nothing else to to buy other than government debt issues with extremely low interest rates. 
A good example of this is the 1944 Andersons. Um, this is uh, named after the Chancellor Sir John Anderson, who uh, replaced Wood when he died in 1943. And the 44 Andersons had a miserable coupon of 1.75%. Um, compare that to the 5% uh, Third War loan, or the uh, there was even some 6% uh, issues during World War One. Initially, with Hitler just 20 miles away across the channel, for the most part, people got on with it. Um, but later on, and particularly more in peacetime, people started to find ways around uh, avoiding paying these high rates of tax. And we'll discuss uh, more on that uh, problem of tax avoidance and tax evasion next time. The government had in the late 30s, one of the things Chamberlain very much got right, was to change some of the rules um, so that people couldn't uh, avoid uh, surtax by um, making themselves into uh, companies uh, as they had in the 1920s. But nonetheless, um, people still found, uh, people were still to find their way around the system. So the second uh, thing about the war was that the second necessity, if you like, was that uh, some heavy economic planning was needed. The Conservatives had um, fought the 1935 election, talking about Labour's malicious plans um, and how their controls would lead to inspectors coming round your homes. But of course, the necessity of war meant that they, whether they liked it or not, um, had to uh, make some serious uh, planning. Um, for the economy. It was also accompanied by full employment. And so much of the critique that they'd um, thrown at Labour in the 1930s was um, disarmed. There were also some other uh, forms of egalitarianism which were necessary, such as heavy rationing. So, to put it simply, the public came to realise that contrary to prior, their prior beliefs in the 1930s, there was an alternative to high unemployment, poverty and inequality. If an egalitarian planned economy would work in wartime, then surely couldn't it work after the war? The war coalition made the Labour Party respectable. For anyone who had uh, been worried about its motivations in the 1930s, Churchill, of course, had put um, two senior Labour people in his cabinet. So when Churchill, um, later on in the 1945 election, made his infamous Gestapo uh, broadcast, it came across as rather ludicrous. Um, since he'd been um, making the jibe at people who'd served alongside him um, in government for the past five years. So another major mistake that the Conservatives made was in 1942-43, in the aftermath of the so-called Beveridge Report. Um, the Liberal, William Beveridge, had been asked to look into proposals for social welfare after the war, and he came back with a pretty radical report. It was a blueprint for a welfare state, including universal free health care. Labour uh, was able to credibly propose to introduce it in full if they won the election, and portray the Conservatives, who only half-heartedly accepted parts of it, as basically rejectors. Um, Churchill is said not to have liked Beveridge, um, which made uh, matters worse. The Overton window had significantly uh, shifted to the left um, during wartime. And so by the end of the war, the stage was set for a big Conservative defeat. 
Um, now, there are arguments that some other factors during the wartime may have made things even worse. Um, Ross McKibben argues that, um, for example, evacuations and militarization um, meant that people mixed with people from other parts of the country, uh, people from other classes or occupational backgrounds, much more so than they'd done before the war. And so this seems to have been effective in spreading around some left-wing ideas um, to people who previously hadn't uh, been exposed to them. Um, McKibben also says that there were some demographic changes between, um, in, particularly in the late 30s, in fact, uh, due to the Great Depression. Um, some of the more economically successful areas of the country, such as London and the East Midland towns and cities with sort of light industries that, that did very well in the late 30s, such as Leicester, Coventry, Northampton and Nottingham, attracted in workers from poorer parts of the country. You know, for example, people from uh, the South Wales Valleys, and maybe some of those people brought labour values with them. And so by the 1945 election, um, there were new people in um, some of the constituencies that had been safely um, voting for the national government in 1935. So it looks really by 1945, the Conservatives were a pretty toxic brand. Despite Churchill's own pos um, personal popularity, there was really very little they could do to avoid defeat. Labour was able to go into the election offering many things that were actually the status quo, you know, not that they were going to, to, to change things like they'd been doing in 1935, but were already there. So they were already planning and controls. There were already high taxes on the wealthy. Food subsidies were in place. There was easy money. Um, there was full employment and Keynesian demands ma management. So Labour um, was able to make the offer to adapt these for peacetime conditions alongside a program of nationalisation and full implementation of the beverage report. Now it looks to us that a Labour government was inevitable in 1945 but in fact it was one of the biggest um, upsets in political history of all time. Hardly anybody including Attlee himself um, according to his recent uh, biographer Michael Jago really believed that the Labour Party were actually going to win let alone win an act actual landslide. Um, there had been some opinion polling, and has been done by the UK affiliate of Gallup, which was known as BPIO, and um, that had suggested for most of the war that Labour were well ahead. Um, and although there was no, uh, there were no by-elections um, contested between the Conservatives and Labour, um, when there were by-elections, left-wing candidates often um, stood up. Uh, against the, the Conservatives, where there were Conservative seats. Um, and some of these left-wingers uh, were elected from time to time, indicating that um, ev even though there was a Conservative Labour truce um, during a coalition, that there was a swing in the country towards the left. But as I say, nobody believed it. I'm deliberately not going to run with the 1945 election in any more detail at this stage. I'd strongly recommend Vernon Bogdanor's Gresham Lecture, uh, you can find that on YouTube, uh, and that'll give you a about an hour um, of uh, the 1945 election in detail. If you want to, if you want to get some more information on that, in the next episode, I'm going to move on to the Labour government of 1945 to 1950, and I'm going to talk about the devaluation of 1949 and the effect, the effects that that was going to have on public opinion. And then after that episode, I'm going to move on to the 1950 election.
I do hope you enjoyed this first uh, podcast. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, if you didn't enjoy it, I guess you're probably asleep because it was quite a long uh, podcast. So I shall say sweet dreams and I will be back shortly with another podcast. <laughs>